0: I'd like for you to turn to the 18th chapter of the book of Matthew, and we're talking about those crucial questions that we find in the scripture. Um, And we're at the one tonight, um, who is greatest in the kingdom of God? Eighteenth chapter of Matthew. I'll uh, read in a moment from that passage. Before we get to it, say a couple of things. What Yogi Berra used to say, "Before I say something, I want to start talking." Uh, there is nothing that God loves more than pure, true humility, and there's nothing that turns God's stomach more than rank pride. Uh, some wag said that that pride is the uh, is the only disease that makes everybody sick except the person who has it and uh, that, that <laughs> right we oh you mans come easy when we're talking about somebody else <laughs> god has a god hates a proud heart and uh, it's on his hit list, as a matter of fact. Uh, at the top, on the top of his hit list of things that he hates is a proud look. It's the spirit that makes one overestimate himself and underestimate somebody else. A definition of pride is an inflated opinion about one's own importance. Now, the Apostle Paul had a great deal to say about pride. The interesting thing about his um, uh, writings is, is that as he got to the end of his ministry, he talked more about pride than at any other time. In fact, in the last two letters of the Apostle, which are First and Second Timothy, the idea of conceited people or, or pride is found often. It is... Um, uh, very much a a part of what he talks about in the end of his ministry. I think there's some significance to that because I think that this man, as he matured as a Christian, and as the thorn in the flesh had done its broken work in his life, he began to understand how much God loves a humble heart. Let's take a look at 2 Timothy now I want to show you a couple of things that, about pride that he talks about. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1. And the Apostle Paul is um, talking about some characteristics of the end time. What it's like at the end, uh, you know, at the en- as you approach the end time, what people are like. And he goes through this list. Men are, will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful arrogant etc and he comes down to verse 4 look at that treacherous reckless conceited now the word reckless there is is a significant word It it means desire out of control it is people who are literally living out of control and the word conceited is a word that means swell headed it means a guy that has a big head don't you love him The guy has a big head. And he said, Toward the end of the age, this is what is going to characterize the people at the end of the age. They're going to be reckless, out of control, swell heads with tremendous pride. Who needs God? And who needs anybody else? That kind of thing. As a matter of fact, in his next to the last book, he uses the same word, conceited, three times. I want to show those to you. And in these three descriptions or three uses of the word conceited, he gives us a picture or a description of what the world considers great or the the world's estimate of greatness. The first is found in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6. Verse 6 of chapter 3. And not a new convert, lest he become conceited, swell-headed, get the big head, and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Now the context of this is the, the, the qualities are the qualifications of l- leaders within the church. And the Apostle Paul had a problem about uh, placing new converts, immature Christians, in places of leadership or authority lest they become conceited and get the big head at it while they're doing it. And he gives us the first description of what the world considers greatness and that is to be in a position of authority. Now the warning here is is that when people get in positions of authority and power they tend to lose control, they tend to to be prideful, big-headed, and have have a lack of humility. Out of control people in authority, power corrupts, somebody said, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so the Apostle Paul warns that when you get into a position of authority, be careful because you have a tendency to become prideful there. All right, second. Um, is found in, in, in the 6th chapter, verse 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. The second thing the world considers the, quali- uh, the, the character of greatness, or the world deems great is an abundance of knowledge, so-called intellectuals, you know, people who know it all. What I did when I was 17, you know, know it all. Um, What the world considers great are are people who have an abundance of knowledge with all these degrees beside their name. Be careful, he said, because there is a tendency... With knowledge to be corrupt by pride. Now I know there are a lot of people, you, you can see their faces, you know their names, who have a servant heart who are, are a brilliant people, and they're people with tremendous knowledge, they're intellectuals, but the danger is is to become prideful with the more we know. So the world considers greatness an abundance of knowledge. The third, is found in verses 9 and 10, same chapter. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith, pierced themselves through with many a pang, But flee from these things. The man of God pursues righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness, etc. And the third thing that the world considers great is a dimension of riches. Um, Pursuing riches to to, to have wealth. And we just um, almost idolize uh, movie stars and athletes who have an abundance of wealth. And he says, be very careful when, a, when, when wealth happens, had not happened to me, but when, when there's a dimension of riches because one has a tendency to be proud. Now, what does God think about all of this? And what does God consider great? What is greatness as as God considers greatness? I want you to turn to the 18th chapter of Matthew. Now we're there. Now while you're turning, I want to remind us that nothing the world considers greatness impresses God. Nothing that the world considers as greatness impresses God. But the other side of the coin is, is that what impresses God does not impress the world. And there is a question that is seldom asked, and this is the question, who is greatest in the kingdom of God? Now the world is always asking, who is greatest? The one who knows the most, the one who has power, and the one who is rich. But the question that is seldom asked, seldom asked even in a congregation like this, is who is greatest in the kingdom of God? Now I want you to notice verse 1 of chapter 18 says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is then, who then is greatest in the kingdom of God? Now I want you to take a pencil and circle the phrase at that time. At what time? What's he talking about here? What is the context here? Well I got my Harmony of the Gospels down and and, and got and looked at it to see what where this was in the chronology on the development of the New Testament, what, where it fit in, in, uh, with regard to the other Gospels. And I, and I want you to turn to see. It's in the ninth chapter of the book of Mark. The ninth chapter of the book of Mark. You, you do know, just a little, uh, hit, little you know, biblical lesson here, that Mark is the first book, first of the Gospels written. And it became the model, it became the... The book from which the other gospels used as the the other gospels used as a source, and even though it's further on than Matthew in 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 the in the arrangement of the New Testament, it was the first gospel written. You knew that already, right? You couldn't care less. Uh, (laughs) Which one was first? I I got it. Mark chapter nine, verses thirty three and thirty four. And they came to, Caper- to Capernaum, that is, the disciples. And when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? What were discussing there means, what were you debating about? What were you, what were you arguing about? And they got silent because they knew they'd been caught. It's like a kid, you know, his uh, mother comes in and says, who's been in the cookie jar? And everybody gets quiet. They, they were silent. For on the way, look, they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. I can just hear their discussion. Well, I'm the greatest because I was chosen first. No, I'm the greatest because my brother was chosen along with me. He knows our family. I was greatest. Because I'm holding the purse, and the conversation went on. This debate went on and on until they got in the upper room in John 13, as a matter of fact. Who is the greatest? And what Jesus did was he called a little child. I want to do something tonight. I'm to walk right here. This little girl. Would you come here, sweetheart? This is my, this is my girl. Come here, darling. I want you to walk up here with me. Do you mind doing this? You've seen, you've seen this precious girl r- running around here, haven't you? She's singing in our children's choir. Now, is there something special about a little child like this? Is something disarming about a little child? Who is the greatest? Hey, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not funny. Who is the greatest? One just like this is the greatest. Thank you, sweetheart. You can go to your seat. Now, when Jesus wanted to do a little object lesson about the greatest, he, he, just, he walked over there and he said, Come here, sweetheart. And he, and he brought that little child up where he was and stood her in the midst of these men who were arguing. And there's something really beautiful about the innocence of a child. Isn't it terrible that we have to learn all this ugly stuff that we learn? I was reading some information the other day that, that the rabbis, the Jewish rabbis, would not let, their, let children read the book of Ezekiel until they were 30 years of age. Isn't it tragic that little children learn all this crazy stuff that, that we, that we have to learn who is, who is greatest, a little child. There's something in, beautiful about their innocence. The Episcopalian church came out not long ago with a, with a little article about questions that were asked in their church school and the answers their children gave. For example, um, Noah's wife's name is Joan of Arc. <laughs> Joan of Arc. The fifth commandment was humor your mother and your father. They had a little church history, and, and, and one of the answers on this church history quiz was that the Pope lived in the vacuum. <laughs> and Lot's wife, listen to this, Lot's wife was a pillar of salt by day and a ball of fire at night. Now, I love that one, a <laughs> ball of fire at night. And, and, and in this uh, in this theology quiz they got is that the Christian can have only one wife. What is that called? Monotony is that's what, that's what that's called. <laughs> Monotony. I didn't hear any amens on that one. A <laughs> child just simply says the truth. A child learns cynicism and they learn abuse. But by nature there is this inner beauty and... And, and this tenderness and this, innocent, this innocence. Now, listen to what Jesus said. Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. The word converted there means to, to turn. Unless you're turned, he said. What he's saying in essence is that the pursuit of greatness, as you know greatness, and the direction you're heading, headed in your philosophy about greatness, unless you're turned, unless you have a change of mind and attitude, you'll not get into the kingdom. I want to see, he's saying, I want to see modeled servanthood, I want to see childlikeness among you. Not childishness, but childlikeness among you. Who was this little girl? You ever wondered? There are a lot of legends about who she was. But her name is not there on purpose because her identity is not the importance. Her her model is the importance. What she modeled who is this little child? It doesn't matter. It's what she is that matters. And until we become like that, he said, we won't even see the king. Now what is childlikeness? Well, it's a sense of wonder. Little kids have a sense of wonder. It's innocence. It's an absence of a callowed conscience. It's sheer trust. They have to, you have to teach your children not to get in a car of a stranger. It's to be full of love and affection. It's natural curiosity. It's the ability to forgive and to forget. God chose that quality of humility and all that it means. I lament the fact tonight that I have lost the childlike heart. And I lament the fact tonight that I have learned to be hard and calloused and distrustful. And I lament the fact that I don't have the innocence of my childhood. I lament that. And God shows humility. Little kids think nothing about protocol and impressing people and the struggle for power, what he's saying is this, I want people who have absolute trust and total dependence. I want people who will defer to me, who will lean on me, who will listen to me, who will feed on me, who will have needs met by me, who will be grateful to me, who will live a life of submission before me. That's what honors him. That's what he'd like you and me to be like. And he didn't stop with the model. Look at verse 5. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now why didn't he say whoever receives such a child? Whoever receives a child. Why did he say one such a child? Well it could mean anybody. It could mean you converts. It could mean those who are tender and easily offended and hurt. When we're around those people he's saying. Don't, don't put them off accept them love them receive them and there is a parallel to verse 5 in the twenty-fifth chapter you've already guessed it turn to that would you chapter 25 we'll read beginning at verse 32 he's talking about that final day he says and all the nations will be gathered before him he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left, and then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now why was he so attracted to those people? The ones on the right, come, inherit this kingdom that was prepared for you. Here's why he was so attracted. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Now, what now, is this next verse? Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty, give you drink? When did we see you, a stranger, invite you in, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them. That's an attributive, in the tributive case it's, It's an adjective where the emphasis to be placed on the adjective. And what he's saying is, in essence, even the very, very least one, you've done it to me. And the impressive thing here is is that they they had such a servant heart, they didn't even know they were doing it to Jesus and for Jesus. Anthony Campola has a marvelous book called, called A Reasonable Faith in which he talks about the fact that every day of our life we have opportunities to minister to Jesus in the least of people, in the least of them. And he said, now, if, we, if Jesus were there in the flesh, we'd be running to minister to him. But the servant heart, this childlike heart, is the, is the heart that ministers to everybody, even the least of them. That's what he wants from you and me. And that is what is great. In his eyes. Somebody put it, paraphrased it like this. I was afflicted with cerebral palsy. And you listened to my faltering speech. I was a Down syndrome child. And you welcomed me into your church. I was mentally retarded. And you love reached out to me. And we said, when did we... Listen to you, cerebral palsy victim. And when did we welcome you, Down syndrome child, into our church? And, and when did we reach out to you and love mentally retarded one? And he said, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. Now, Now hear me, please. What God considers great are the people who minister to the least of mankind. Now back to chapter 18. We're going to wind this up with chapter 18. Verse 6 and then 10. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he'd be drowned in the depths of the sea. These millstones were these huge things. We saw them when we were in the Holy Lands. That these animals would drag to grind up the, um, the, the grain. They were huge and heavy. Dare anyone become a stumbling block? That Greek word is scandalon. Dare anybody become a Scandal to little children like stood right there in the aisle. Young people, by the time you get to high school, there are little kids that are looking up to you. Some will look up to you because you're athletes. Everybody in this town, every kid in this town, knows the names of the guys Who scored touchdowns on Friday night? I guarantee you. And they look on you when you come out on that field, band and and uh, drill team as you walk down that that uh, uh, track to go around. I watch them. I'm up in the place where I can see them. A little kids get down there and just stare, almost idolize. Would you dare? Be a scandal to them. Would you parents dare be a stumbling block to a little child? Be better, he said, that you were dead, and that would happen. Now notice verse 10. See to it that you despise that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. And that verse right there becomes the root, that is the root where we get the idea that every child has a guardian angel. There's no real uh, passage of Scripture that deals with that in, 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 in specific detail, but there's where that idea has its roots, that in the throne room of God, Angels behold the Father in behalf of little children. Now, if you are in a meeting high places and your babysitter calls you secretary and says, this is an emergency, would you go get Mr. Tom Smith who's in his CEO meeting and that... Secretary comes in and says, your babysitter is calling and it's an emergency. You're out of there because who represents them touches you. Now watch this. He says, I've been there, Jesus said. I've been in the throne room of God. I've seen it happen. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've been in the place where only the Son of God has ever been. I've been in the throne room of God, and I've seen angels representing little children there. Dare you offend one? Dare you become a scoundrel to one? You'd be better off dead than that. Little ones, these little ones, this is what makes up the kingdom. This attitude is what God loves. And He loves every adult who models them and who is a model to them. Ah, man, what a thought. And everybody here tonight, young or old, who has a childlike heart, God loves It's the greatest to him. Muhammad Ali could say, I'm the greatest, but I'll tell you who he is. Now, three three applications. Stay in touch with children. First application. Stay in touch with children. Don't let children get out of your life. If you could choose tonight to spend an evening with a movie star, or you could choose to babysit somebody's kid, choose the latter. Don't lose contact with kids. Number two, ask God to give you the same qualities of a child, this precious child. Ask God to give you the same qualities. To soften you, to teach you, to help you say what kids say. When they say, I love you, thank you. The reason I chose this child is because she's always given me a hug. I, I love it. Number three. Treat with respect all those people who emulate the ways of a child. Treat respect, with respect all those people who emulate the way of a child. My idol should be a person who has a childlike heart. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this object lesson. And I hope that it will make an impression on us in our striving for greatness and superiority. For I pray in Jesus' name and for His sake. I wonder if there's somebody this, morning, this afternoon, this evening, who would just have the simple faith of a child and give his heart to Jesus. I asked a little boy one day in counseling here about being saved. I asked him, what does it mean to trust somebody? He said, well, it means to count on him." How about counting on Jesus tonight for your salvation? Just come and place your faith in Him. Or maybe you want to come, as others have done today, to... Join the church or rededicate your life to Christ. While we stand to sing, we ask you to come.